Hello and welcome to the final episode of the latest series of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's still me. I've been doing this for the best part of three years now, but for listeners who might not have heard it before, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. This time around, I'm chatting to the brilliant artist Lucy Sparrow about her fascination with felt. Lucy came to widespread attention in 2014 with an extraordinary installation held in a derelict site in London's East End. At the corner shop, she assiduously recreated everything you might find in a traditional newsagent, some 4,000 items, in her favourite material. This was followed by The Warmongery, a gun shop in Bethnal Green, and in 2015 by Madame Roxy's Erotic Emporium, a felt installation of a sex shop in London's Soho. There have also been shows in the US and China, while this year she launched The Borden Street Chemist at the Lindsay Ingram Gallery in Mayfair and The Billion Dollar Robbery at the Start Art Fair in the Saatchi Gallery. To my mind, her pieces are warm, witty and genuinely joyful, containing references to the likes of Andy Warhol and Damien Hirst, while the artist herself has described her work as being like Blue Peter on acid. I caught up with her at the end of last month, just before she was due to fly to Design Miami. Lucy, how are you? Thanks very much for doing this. Oh, I'm very, very happy to be here, Grant. Thank you for having me. No, it's a complete pleasure. I mean, it's a slightly curious one because we, it's kind of a hybrid one. We're in the same building, we're in your studio, but we're in separate rooms and recording across Zoom for reasons that are too complicated to go into here. Just say it's social distancing. Yes, yeah, okay. Social distancing, we'll do it. We'll say that. Um, I mean, can we talk about in the first instance, we like to kind of locate these podcasts and talk about where we are. I mean, your old studio is is an old ambulance station, fire station? It is. So it's an old ambulance station. It's like an ex-council building that I bought straight from the NHS. And it's still got all the original features that it would be if it was an actual ambulance station. So I've actually got, there's a big garage downstairs that you can fit five ambulances in. And I've kept all the old signage up. So there's so many fire extinguishers. I think there's actually about 25 in the building, which is great. Um, and yeah, lots of directions to where the medical supplies are. So if we go up in flames, we're going to be okay? Honestly, I've got you covered. It's fine. Great. Tell me why Sudbury, which is on the Suffolk-Essex border, how did you end up there? Well, I was already living in Suffolk in Haverhill. And then I was working out of my house at the time. And quickly, like within a year, I'd already outgrown the sort of conservatory that I was working in. And I knew that realistically, I needed to sort of get a commercial property to work out of before going mad because I'd I'd taken over every single room in my house. And it just it just wasn't really practical. And this one just came up on like property auctions. And I just think that there's not a lot of desire for big concrete blocks unless you're going to tear them down and rebuild something there. So I got quite lucky um, when I got it. It's been absolutely amazing. You must have been expecting to expand, Lucy. Do you know what? It's really weird because you say that and I don't know if it's like some weird imposter syndrome where I'm always just thinking, oh, maybe it won't last that long and stuff. I'm like, yes, of course I need to expand. But in the back of your mind, you're kind of like, maybe this will be all right for a bit. And now we've like almost outgrown this building already and it's only been a year and a half. Mm. Because you have a team. How many in your team? I have four full-time assistants that work Monday to Friday and I have some peace workers, these ladies that live like quite locally and they do make all the multiples for me. Um, but the the bulk of it happens in this building and we all sort of like work as a team listening to pop music, drinking lots of tea and singing along. It's a very happy place to work. <laughs> it looks it. I was watching a studio outing the other night at the bingo, yeah. which I'm just quite jealous. You seem to get more of the kind of pen marks on your face, Lucy, than you did actually on a bingo card as far as I could work out. I didn't actually start that. <laughs> that was someone else. <laughs> yeah, we try and do a work outing as if we don't see enough of each other during the week. Um, we need to spend the weekends together as well. Uh, so we went out to bingo. Uh, I think the next one is Winter Wonderland down in Hyde park we'll try and do one a month yeah yeah very good can you tell me because you mentioned it as i walked in can you tell me about the banana room what is the banana room what, what happens in the banana room because bananas figure very prominently in your life i think well the banana room is it was actually like a place where i could keep all my bananas but then i realized that's not actually that much of an explanation as to what the <laughs> banana room is <laughs> just produces more questions so when i was about six or seven years old my parents gave me a cuddly banana for Christmas because I'd seen it in a shop called Clinton Cards, mm. which I don't know if that's still going on. Yeah, or not. yeah, I think so. On a high street near you. Yes. 
I just saw this and I was absolutely obsessed. I'd already had one from one of those claw machines when I went to the seaside at Western Supermare. We used to go there like once a year, a little outing to the seaside. And they just had like a, a bigger version. I was like, this is amazing. How cool is it that there's food and it's got eyes? That's just the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and so my relationship with bananas started there. And I took this banana absolutely everywhere with me, like absolutely everywhere, to school, to bed, everywhere. Yeah. And so the next sort of like 15, 20 years after that, I've spent a lot of time on eBay looking for replicas just where people have had them. they have be like, oh, I'll stick that cuddly toy on eBay. Who knows? I might get it. And I've managed to collect about eight of them, the actual genuine ones. And I kind of became a bit paranoid that I wouldn't be able to find them anymore because they were coming up less and less in my eBay alerts. So I bought the trademark of the company that was just some like import-export one thing based um, in the UK where they just, I think they got toys made in China and then they just brought them in. They were just like shitty fairground toys. Obviously, I thought they were so much better than that. And I got them remade. So the minimum order quantity for getting a toy made, cuddly toys, is 1,500. And I was like, mm, I don't know if that'll be enough, but I will go for it anyway. So I got them made in three different sizes. And obviously, there was a time where I was like, right, I'll, I'll definitely sell all these and it's it's fine. Then I realised that maybe I liked bananas more so than what I was expecting the public to like the bananas. Mm. I think oh, they're obviously amazing, Yeah, but I've probably maybe only sold about 50 of them. So that leaves you with 1,200 furry bananas. Yes, which I'm fine about. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's got to the point now that I'm kind of like, mm, I don't really want to sell them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so so the room, is that just purely a room full of bananas or are there other fruits and vegetables in there as well? No, it's just bananas and some filing cabinets because I had a fight with my studio manager who said that we were running out of space and the bananas couldn't have a dedicated room to themselves. And it had to have filing cabinets in, which I'm not completely happy about, but I was happy to sort of like me in the middle. Yeah, no, fair enough. It appears on Instagram, and you're, I'm looking at you on Zoom as we speak and you're busy working away on a piece. It appears on Instagram that you're making loads and loads of Christmas decorations at the moment. Is this a busy time of year for you? Are the decorations for something specific? Um, no. Uh, so I started doing Christmas decorations about two years ago. Last year, they went absolutely gangbusters. So I prepared early this year and made them in June and expanded the range. And I think... Well, we've got the totalizer on the board up there. I think we're nearing 600 orders from November. So we've still got December to go. So yeah, no, they're, they're going really, really well. So in order to meet everyone's sort of desires, I'm, I'm trying to keep up with orders and um, make sure everyone gets what they want. Yeah. And you're off to Miami shortly. Yeah. Are you sharing there? No, I'm not. Um, do you know what? I'm just doing a couple of interviews with some papers because of the show that I've got opening in Tampa in January. Right. And it's more of sort of like a, I would say a little bit of a jolly and a little bit of a networking sort of opportunity. And I think I'll probably drive up to Tampa at some point during that. I'm only going for four days and I've got 10 massive lobsters to sew on the plane and while I'm there, because uh, I feel bad unless I'm not making something. So uh, <laughs> I took the short straw and I'm making the horrible lobsters that no one else wants to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the person sitting next to you is going to have the full Lucy Sparrow experience then? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm right-handed. So whoever's sitting to my right, I'm going alone, so uh, it'll be, yeah, they'll keep getting punched in the face on my right. <laughs> so maybe I'll hopefully have a window seat, so I'm just jabbing the plane. <laughs> well, look, we're coming to the end of, uh, you know, another extraordinary year, but you seem to have coped very well. You did this show. It's the first show I went to see, actually, after lockdown eased, The Borden Street Chemist at the Lindsay Ingram Gallery in Mayfair, where essentially you recreated a high street chemist by making somewhere in the region 15,000 felt items, including toothpaste, packets of painkillers, bottles of shampoo. It was extraordinary. You name it, it was there. But that project wasn't inspired by the pandemic, though. It was, it was a coincidence, was it? Honestly, it was an absolute coincidence. So I'd wanted to make a chemist for, oh, probably about three years. And it needed a home. And I'd sort of been speaking to Lindsay. We were like trying to find the best placement for it. It was like, oh, do we want to do it in Freeze Art Fair? And I was like, oh, I don't know about the timing. You know, I want it to have its own specific time that it happened. And then it just kept getting postponed and postponed and postponed. And then obviously, eventually, it opened in April after all of the lockdowns. So um, no, it wasn't inspired by the pandemic at all. But what was weird is that it was actually made during the pandemic. It was starting to be made, then the pandemic came, and then we just carried on making it. And they even had even more time because of it, all the postponements. Were your working patterns the same during the pandemic? Did you have to change? I was still working from home. I think it was, I got this place January 2020, but because 
I wasn't really aware of what rules were okay or not. You know where you were like, are we allowed to go leave the house? Are we not allowed to leave the house? I didn't know whether I was like allowed to move into the studio. It was one of those things where you're like, you're only allowed to go out for exercise. And I was like, does that mean that I can't move into the studio? One of my assistants lived with me at the time. So we carried on working at home and then my other assistant worked from her home and then we just like didn't see each other for three months. And then it finally got to May 2020 and then we moved in here. So things didn't change too much. We were always just quite aware of, I mean, we didn't really go anywhere, to be honest. There was nowhere to go. So there wasn't, and we live in the middle of nowhere. So there wasn't sort of much risk. I definitely wasn't going sort of like down to London or anything because there was no reason to. Um, so yeah, I guess our, I guess our things didn't change too much. I mean, obviously projects got cancelled. Some of them cancelled permanently, but other jobs sort of came in in their place. So I think that's the thing. We've managed to survive by being reasonably adaptable and just be like, right, okay, well, that project hasn't happened. So we need something to happen in like the last quarter of 2020 and sort of shift things around and just kind of be amenable, really, Mm. because you have to be. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I mean, when you say that you need things to happen, I mean, are you actively going out and selling projects to people or are people coming to you wanting you to do things for them? By and large, it's people coming to me now, unless it's something where I specifically, I know that I've got an idea and I want to do it. And I, I, I know that it might not be one that's immediately sort of appealing. If it's a bit of an odd one, then I'll put it on myself. But I sort of got a backlog of ideas that I know that, oh, this will work here. This will work there. But nothing's ever made sort of in vain. It's always got a destination, really. And we're always working a year and a half to two years out at any one time. Right. So we're actually working on the Tampa show at the same time as we were working on Borden Street Chemist, at the same time as we were working on Billion Dollar Robbery mm. and a show in Taiwan that got cancelled and then a installation for a restaurant in Paddington. So it's like juggling four things at any one time and then it's just like one gets more acceleration than the other when it needs to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you about Billion Dollar Robbery, which was at the start, art fair at the Sarchi Gallery. Why a bank heist? Do you know, I absolutely love bank heist movies and I think it's <laughs> having this romantic notion of robbing banks and it being absolutely amazing. And, and I think there's something to be said about everyone's had this really tough pandemic and so many businesses have closed and found it really hard and... The only market that seems to have, well, not the only market, but one of the markets that seems to have flourished in this time is the arts. And there were people coming to Freeze to exchange huge amounts of money. And I think that those two together, I wanted to, I wasn't quite sure what I was trying to say, but I was trying to say something. So that was the reason for it being a a bank heist. And did you work out what you were trying to say by the time the show finished? I mean, I don't like to dictate it too much because I think that so much of it you can actually take from yourself. I don't want to be like, this is what it's about. It's not about anything else. If that's what you think, that's great. But yeah, I wanted it to be a little bit poking fun at the art establishment in a way. And um, I've always done projects on my own and self-funded them. So there's this fight against the sort of self-made artist rather than one who's necessarily sort of gone through the system, Mm. gone to uni, gone through all those things. So do I know what I was trying to say? Maybe not. I might work it out in a couple of months. (laughs) Well, I'm keen to talk about your relationship with the art world a bit later, but I mean, the most obvious question to ask kind of up front and really what this podcast is all about is why felt and what is it that fascinates you about that particular material? Do you know, I've been making stuff since I was so small out of felt and I think it was purely by accident in some ways that I think when I was little when I was really little I kind of thought oh maybe I'll be a fashion designer I loved clothes and I loved drawing I was still at an age in school where they tell you you can't make any money from art so you don't become an artist because that's a dead end (laughs) so I thought oh you know maybe a fashion designer maybe uh I don't know teacher they told me that when I wanted to be a journalist they were absolutely right but anyway sorry (laughs) (laughs) so my mum used to get me loads of sheets of felt from the market um And I'd bring them home and just end up cutting shapes out of them, making things, filling them with cotton wool because I didn't know that stuffing existed back then. So I'd just go into the bathroom and get cotton wool balls out of the first aid cupboard and just stuff loads of things with them. And I was sewing and my mum taught me how to sew. My grand was there teaching me how to make cushions and stuff. I was just making what I enjoyed, making what I liked. And I didn't realise at any point that early on that it could be like a serious art practice. I'm obviously delighted about it now. And, <laughs> and I think for, for all those years of making felt and having that relationship with it, it's just so intrinsically linked with me now that I don't even question it anymore. Right, right. What's weird though is that I can go into shops or art fairs or any place and what's weird is that I always seem to find felt. You know, like, 
<laughs> I can go to B and Q, and I'm like, oh, roofing felt, <laughs> and I just have to go and touch it. <laughs> so yeah, maybe it's more common than you think. What did your parents make of this early felt fascination? Because your mum worked in a shop. I think your dad was a, a writer. He wrote for tech magazines, right? Yes. Um, so, I mean, they absolutely loved it. My mum and my dad both encouraged my, my creativity and, and my sister's creativity, really, because she, she does writing and she's creative in different ways. We were brought up to think quite differently and very, like, liberally to just be making all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. And it was never discouraged. It was always encouraged. So I think that it was, yeah, really, <laughs> I think they enjoyed it. I don't think they ever thought it would get to this stage. Because who does? No one can say to you, oh, you, so one day you'll you'll make a living out of making supermarkets that don't sell real food. Like, that's not something that exists, you know what I mean? No, there wasn't a page of that in the careers office, was there? I don't There suppose. was not, no. I remember doing the careers test and it said I could be a vet or a priest, I think it was. I don't know why that, that's a bit of a curveball. I've no idea. Interesting. I got, I think, librarian. Oh, okay. Was uh, what I came out with, which, uh, yeah, maybe I would have been better. But anyway, um, so what were you like at school? Did you enjoy school? No. <laughs> <laughs> Why? No, I Why didn't. Why not? I was just really weird. I was kind of in my own world all the time. I had this like enthusiasm for things that I thought were great, like bananas with faces that I carried around with me. And I guess other people thought that was a bit silly. They were wrong, obviously. <laughs> and I, I, ju I just think if you are a little bit different, you're a little bit offbeat, I think sometimes school can be a, a little bit of a tricky place. I was very academic, sort of like straight A-star student and, and everything, but I had this sort of creative side that I wanted to follow really, but I was at quite a, a strict school that was more academic, I say, than creative. So I ended up leaving when I was 17 and then going to college. Okay. Because you went to university, I think Brighton? I didn't, no. No, I never went to uni. I thought you dropped out. After a year? Um, Am I making that up? Uh, no, you didn't make that up. No, I went to Bournemouth Uni. I tried to for a year. Got very disillusioned by it. Mm, you've described it in the past as crushing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wonder, what, what happened? Do you know what? I think when you're at school, you think, oh, right, you know, when I'm older, like, I'm going to meet so many other creative people and they're going to be exactly like me. And uh, and you have this thing where, like, you, you really want to belong in some ways and you go there expecting to belong and then you still don't belong and you're like, what the hell am I doing wrong? I must be so weird. <laughs> um, and then I just realised, I was like, Do you know what, maybe you're just not supposed to belong anywhere. I guess in some ways that was the reason why I started making like felt world versus real world. Because like real world in some ways can be so disappointing, but in felt world, you'll never, you'll never be disappointed because you've created the whole thing yourself anyway. So it's like a universe that you can retreat into that's sort of a bit more reliable and a bit more ideal, really. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. Do you feel like you belong now? Are you in a place where you feel you're comfortable? Yeah, I think as you get older, you end up gravitating towards people that you really get on with. Because I think school, uni, you know, jobs before their jobs that you create for yourself, you end up being sort of put in a group with people that you not don't necessarily have stuff in common with and you don't necessarily have the social skills to make it work and then as you get older you meet like-minded people and then you're just like this is absolutely fine and I don't know I think you just grow up a bit and, and learn to adapt um so yeah I do think I belong now but the felt world's always I still hate, hate doing real world stuff the felt world's still more preferable <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued because did you find uh, like common souls in the Sudbury area it isn't necessarily a place you'd think of as being a kind of the heartland of, you know, a kind of exploratory felt art. No, I didn't really. I mean, I work with some great people and everyone that I work with, whether they're in the studio and out, I think there's just a shared bond of creativity and like making things with your hands. In terms of Sudbury, I think I only know, know like two people here. There's a, a guy that runs a, a vinyl company who I go and talk to about signs and we're quite friendly with the bin men. Always useful. Honestly, mm. I love the bin men. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there <laughs> It was quite funny, actually. So we say hello to the bin men every Thursday because we've got big commercial sort of waste things. And they read the sign because the sign outside said, so your soul limited. And the bin man bought me a pair of jeans and he's like, I've seen on the sign you do like sewing. Can you mend my jeans? And like, he must have just caught me in a really good mood. And I was like, I'll mend your jeans. <laughs> and it ended up taking me about two months to do them. And he was getting like more and more irate because I think he thought that actually 
that's what I did for a job. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, but I eventually did get them done and I'm like, I've mended your jeans. <laughs> so you've got bin men with beautifully darned jeans. Exactly. Yeah, I think I did. I did quite a good job considering it's absolutely not what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, I mean, you talked about process and you're busy making as we talk. How do you go about making your pieces, Lucy? Can you give us this kind of step-by-step guide? And how much of it do you do and how much do you farm out nowadays? So it starts with the design. Right, if we're going to go do right from the beginning, um, I'll decide what show I'm going to do. So, for instance, Tampa, me and my assistant, Jess, we flew out to Tampa about nearly exactly two years ago now. And we go around every supermarket, every sort of like local store in that area, if it's going to be sort of geographically specific. And we take photos of every single shelf, every single product. We choose from there and from those photos which products are going to feature. And when we get back to the studio, I then design those products and then everyone in the team cuts them out. When you say design them, do you draw them? No, I just make them I just make them out of felt. Okay. So I'll have a picture in front of me on my laptop and then I'll make a felt 3D version. So and then I'll have a flat sample and a made sample. So I'll know that every single time I make one, they're all gonna look the same. So it's like a, a like a clothes pattern. And then all the girls in the studio cut out the multiples. And then when that's all done. They get made into like little kits. So you've got the thread, you've got the stuffing, you've got the eyes, if the things have got eyes, uh, you've got all the components. Then that goes out to all the sewing ladies. If it's very complicated stuff that might involve sort of like plastic pellets or wire, we do all of that in-house. That gets dropped off to the sewing ladies every Friday. All the multiples come back with the made sample and then they get bagged up and then I paint every single one. So you're doing all the painting? Yeah. Recently, Jess, my assistant, has started doing the first layer of paint because I've just been getting really bad RSI, which I don't know why is it a surprise. It's obviously going to happen at some point. So she's been taking on a bit more of the painting recently, which has um, been a massive help. And just to be clear for people, this isn't painting with a brush, presumably. How do you apply the paint to the felt? It's an acrylic-based paint and it comes directly out of the tube. If it's very, very fine lettering, I do it with a syringe. Right. It goes directly from the tube onto the felt. So if you make a mistake, that things ruined like it's literally ruined where you cut it out you've made it and you've painted half of it if it then goes wrong you either have to try and fix it yeah or just don't go wrong yeah <laughs> do you go wrong often is there a lot of wastage i wonder do you know what there actually isn't unless something really catastrophic happens like i'll drop a whole tray of something it's usually savable because mm. i'll take one panel off that's been smudged or just take it off and then sort of like replace it. I don't like to waste stuff, so I try and save as much as possible. Also, I'd hate to think that they wouldn't be included in the show. I'm, I mean, I'm looking at these cinnamon rolls now and they're just looking at me. I'd be <laughs> heartbroken if like they've come all this way and then right at the last hurdle, their paint goes wrong and they don't get to go to Florida. Yeah. I just think that'd be really sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you a complete workaholic? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't even deny it anymore. Like, I, I work like seven days a week. And when I'm not working, I wish I was working. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like work. So I feel like I, don't, I can't moan about it because, yeah, yeah. yeah, I wish I could sleep more. And sometimes I wish. Well, I was going to say, do you sleep? I sleep a lot, actually. But I sleep like 10 hours a night because I'm always tired. But you can sleep. If all you do is work in between then, the rest of the time you sleep, then it's actually very restful. But do you have, I mean, it sounds ridiculous. I guess what some people do for a hobby would be the kind of work, I mean, not as well as you do it, but the kind of work that you do, you know, knitting and all these kinds of things that people are taking up as hobbies. But do you do anything outside of the felting? I absolutely love it when I sort of have to go down to London and I go to show openings and I get to see my friends at shows. I get to see my agents and we talk about the art world. And I guess that is my hobby in some way. But again, that's working. Still, you know, I'm going to Miami next week and that does not feel like work to me. Maybe my life does seem very one dimensional, but I think it is like that when you're doing what you love and it's all you've ever wanted to do. I don't think you can separate the two. If you're really giving your art career a go, you're either all in or not at all. And I've never sort of like let that phase me. I'm not upset about it at all. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. It just makes you use your time better. There's still time to go to bingo. <laughs> yes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all bad. <laughs> Talking about the art world, you spent really the best part of a decade trying to get purchase into it. During that time, you worked in any number of jobs. Were you always convinced you're on the right path? I think I'm quite blessed with this like blind optimism where I'm like, right, if you put enough into something and if you put enough 
energy, and I don't sort of mean like positive energy or positivity. I actually mean like full on real energy, like physical energy, that something good must come of it. If you sort of stay pure and your intentions are real, then something good will come of it eventually. So yeah, don't get me wrong. There were times when I was like, oh my God, I've made something and it's taken me a week and I've sold it for 20 pounds. <laughs> so yeah, back in the day, yeah, it was kind of like, oh God, you know, it's impossible not to con- sort of compare yourself to others. So when you see others doing well, back when I wasn't doing as well, you really start to question, you're like, why can't, you know, what am I doing wrong? That kind of thing. But so much, much of it's timing. So much of it is luck in a way. I, and I don't want to say luck, not real luck. Maybe I mean luck as in timing. Well, it's that old saying, is it the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah, I think there is a little bit of that. And I think it's definitely got easier. And I think that anytime you have a success, you almost forget the hard times or you forget how hard it was. I think it's important to keep the faith because if you don't, honestly, I don't I don't know what you would do if you didn't keep the faith. You'd probably have given up by now. Mm. Mm. I mean, you've got this fascinating backstory. Is it true you have an HGV license? I do, yeah. <laughs> was it always a long-term goal to have an HGV license? You can drive big articulated lorries. I can, yeah. Oh, excellent. I've always had a fascination with vehicles whether it's cars motorbikes trucks I was obviously like quite a bit of a tomboy when I was a kid and as soon as I could drive I was out of there (laughs) literally I passed my test on my 18th birthday and then just literally drove to Manchester a couple of days later what it was is that I had a transit van I was the first thing I bought a significant purchase after corner shop did so well I bought myself an XRAC van and I bought myself a laptop because I never had a laptop and it was like the most amount of money I'd spent I'd only ever had like shit cars, you know? So I bought this van. I think I, I think it was like four and a half thousand pounds. And I was like, oh my God, I feel sick. I've just spent <laughs> so much money. Um, <laughs> and um, I think I used that for like four years, carting the felt around. When that broke, I knew that I wanted to get a more interesting vehicle. So I bought an ex-ambulance, like it was from the service auctions in mid Wales. And I drove it back. And I was driving it around for about two months and I think something went wrong with it or like the battery went or something. And the guy at the garage was like, you look too young to have a license for that. And I was like, what do you mean? Uh, and I realized that I'd been driving this thing around and I couldn't actually drive it on my license. Ah. I mean, physically I could, but legally I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. So I had to put the ambulance away, quickly go and get my HGV license. <laughs> you need an HGV license to drive an ambulance? Yeah. So basically... Now, if you passed your test pre-94, you can drive up to seven and a half tonne. If you passed after 94, there's no test where it takes you up to seven and a half tonne. You literally either go from car to an 18 tonne. Well, I never. 18 or 22? Yeah. So I don't know when you pass your test. You, you could probably legally drive my ambulance. Yeah, I'm really old. Yeah, I could, dri- I could drive your ambulance. <laughs> there you go. But like legally you could, you know, and it's not a hard thing to drive. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just a weight issue. And there was always this thing and my friend was like, why don't you just take off the body lift on the back? Because it's got this body lift and it goes beep, beep, beep and a stretcher. And I was like, well, I'm obviously not going to do that because that's actually quite useful. So I had to like quickly go and do this um, HGV license. I, I failed the first one and the second one I got it. And I, I honestly, I couldn't believe it. The guy was just like, oh, I'm pleased to say you've passed. And I was like, what? Oh my God. <laughs> Came home and I've just been driving the ambulance ever since. Um, <laughs> so uh, the ambulance is outside the building we're talking from. Yes. Is it broken down at the moment? It doesn't look in perfect working order, if you don't mind me saying. How rude. Sorry. <laughs> It is, and I've spent quite a lot of money on it in the last year, and I sort of had a bit of a word with myself a couple of weeks ago and was like, right, maybe the time has come to retire Jelly Bones and maybe be a little bit more sensible, and in the future, at some point, I can get a different ambulance, because it's very old. Mm. And then I realised I actually didn't have a working car, so I actually have no way of getting around. So yeah, a couple of days ago, I just went on Facebook Marketplace and bought like the most old man car possible. I love it. It's called Cousin Clive. <laughs> and um, what mark might that be for old men? Being old, I just need to know. It's a 97 Vauxhall Astra in gold. I see. Well, I'll bear that in mind next time I'm in the marketplace <laughs> for a car. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy, you get asked about this all the time. I don't particularly want to dwell on it, but it is part of your backstory, which is that you're a lap dancer for five years before you broke into the art world. You always talk quite practically about it, that it was the most efficient way to make money in the least amount of time. Is that still how you feel about it? Absolutely. Mm. I mean, maybe I just had too much of a sort of 
relaxed attitude about it. But it just, honestly, it re- just really didn't bother me. I, I know some people are like, oh my God, that's, are you okay? And I'm like, of course I'm okay. I literally got to like dress in nice clothes and make loads of money for no work. I don't understand what the bad point of it is, but maybe I'm just looking at it too literally. Yeah, I mean, I paid for my first solo show with it and I acquired the skill to speak to people from all walks of life. So it sort of equipped me with that confidence that I don't know whether you'd get such a crash course in it from any other job. So yeah, I th- it was like the lowest sort of um, amount of work for the highest amount of money in the shortest time. So it meant that during the day I could be making art all the time and then at night I would be dancing in the clubs and did that from the ages of 22 to 27. Mm. Did you always feel safe? Yeah. People that were working there were lovely. The bouncers were lovely. The club owners were lovely. I mean, there was a couple of times where you're like, oh, I probably wouldn't work here again. It was like maybe a little bit sleazy and stuff. But I had the sort of understanding that if I was unsafe, I'd just get myself out of that situation. So no, I didn't I didn't ever feel unsafe. But I don't know if that's because of like maybe being blissfully unaware or the ability to feel like I could take care of myself. Honestly, I haven't got any negative memories of it. And I think that's sometimes not what people want to hear. They maybe want to hear a bit of a sob story. And it's like, honestly, I had the greatest time. I met some really lovely people and everyone there dancing is doing exactly the same thing, whether they're paying for their degrees, whether they're paying for kids or whatever. It hasn't got this sort of scandalous or thrilling details that I think people want to hear. Most of the time you're discussing what you were going to have in Burger King after you'd finish your shift. But, but yeah, I'm really happy I did it. I think in some ways I still miss it. It was so much fun. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm too old to go back to it now, but like, <laughs> and uh, I'm a bit busy. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I don't know, like I, I do. I never used to be into R&B. And then as soon as I started working in clubs and stuff, I was like, this is amazing. Because <laughs> I only used, ever used to listen to like, 70s music. It really opened up my eyes to so many things that I just wouldn't have necessarily thought I liked. One of your first shows happened when you were working in the club, right? You met the owner of an art gallery. I did. Quite often I would say that I was doing other things. I'd say that I was a teacher or something. Do you know what? I just, I just used to make it up every night. Depending on how I was feeling, I sometimes just used to outright lie just to make the evening more interesting. So they'd be like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm... Uh, I'm an art teacher or I'm a, I'm a history teacher because I'm quite into history so I could blag it enough that I could be convincing. But on one of these nights, this person was like, oh, I've, I own an art gallery and stuff. And then um, I was like, oh, no way, I do art. You know, in some ways I was like, maybe this is my in. I'm going to get it. I'm going to seize that. <laughs> and they um, gave me his email address. And that is super not allowed. You're not supposed to take anyone's contact numbers or anything, probably because of safety and also like, you know, the obvious. I emailed this guy and I was like, here's my work. I'd love to be in a show and he's like yeah I'm doing a group show it's in Brighton submit your work and that's the first time I'd ever shown in any kind of gallery or anything like that and it opened up the world of sort of street art because it was a street art show even though my stuff was nothing to do with street art interesting oh, I love the story that you used to sew when the club was quiet I did yeah because there's usually about two hours between the time that the club opens and the time that it's sort of starts getting busy so you've got these two hours of just like sitting around some people read some people just play on their phones but I, I would be sewing or drawing I'd, I'd always take my sketchbook there I'd draw people dancing or I'd just draw stuff from my head and it was great lovely two hours of just listening to music and um and drawing when you draw stuff from your head what was in your head um maybe like ideas for shows right like stream of consciousness stuff sometimes I just draw stuff and it might be might be food with faces. It might be like, it's usually inanimate objects, really, to be honest. Uh, sometimes it's animals. And they're always kind of like line drawings and then colour pencil. Sometimes I use like watercolour pencils and then I get a black fine liner and, and draw around them all. And they're always just like random scenes of just absolute nonsense with faces. <laughs> nonsense with faces. <laughs> it's a description. So after this 10 years of struggle, when you broke... You really broke huge with the corner shop in 2014, where you recreated a news agent's in a derelict site in East London. I think it took seven months and there were 4,000 items on display. Where did that idea come from? My boyfriend at the time, I think he was like fed up of listening to me moan about how I wasn't getting anywhere. By that time, I'd given up dancing and I was working doing just like temping, like admin jobs. Why did you give up the dancing out of interest? Oh, you can't have a boyfriend when you're okay. when you're doing that job. Yeah. Believe me, um, <laughs> they don't like it. <laughs> and 
he was like, you need to do something like massive. You need to do something that people can't ignore. And he's American. So he was obviously like, had all the confidence in the world. And I'm like, maybe was lacking confidence in those areas. And I was like, you're absolutely right. I need to do things better. I need to do things bigger. I need to do something that basically people cannot ignore. I need to make like either a whole like house or a whole shop. What about like a corner shop? And my first ever job was in a corner shop. So I was like, right, this is it. Gonna make a whole corner shop. Realised that I didn't have the money to make it. So I did a Kickstarter campaign. Which at the time, 2014, I mean, not that many people were doing, I suspect. Honestly, no. What it was is I tried to get Arts Council funding, was turned down. Then they said, oh, can you get match funding? I was like, what the hell is match funding? Googled match funding. And someone says, oh, why don't you try crowdsourcing? I was like, what the hell is crowdsourcing? So Googled that. And I came across Indiegogo or Kickstarter. And I was like, well, Kickstarter, it's like more risk because you have to make all the money or you don't get any of it. Whereas Indiegogo, you sort of hit a target regardless, you know, you get the money regardless. Whereas Kickstarter, if you don't reach the target, game over. So I tried to raise £2,000 and a couple of people like bidding on it. My mum and my sister, I think, did a couple of people I knew. And I woke up at like three in the morning and it was on three and a half thousand pounds. And I was like, what? And it's had all these strangers from America, Australia, like all over the UK that had pledged this money. And I was like, oh, God, I wasn't expecting that. Where did they find you in the first place? Just Kickstarter. Purely through Kickstarter? Purely through Kickstarter. So I, what I didn't realise at the time was the reach that Kickstarter had. I think all I did was post it on Facebook and Kickstarter. Mm. That was it. Mm. And Kickstarter have their own sort of community. So obviously it's massive now. So it's I think it's a lot harder to get things funded because there's the market's almost flooded. Yeah, there's just people from wherever. And I just made this little video with, we went to uh, Bethnal Green where the corner shop was hopefully going to take place and I sat on a park bench and I just held up these felt items saying if you pledge 10 pounds you get this if you pledge 20 pounds you get this and then I suddenly had to make about 5,000 items before I'd even started making the corner shop to fulfill the pledges that people had put money towards I sort of really wasn't expecting that by then I'd applied for arts council funding again with the kickstarter at like quite a low amount turned down again I then applied for a third time because I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to apply for a third time, just third time lucky. I then got it. So I had Arts Council money and Kickstarter money. And by then the project had massively overrun in terms of money anyway. So I was quite glad that I did have both. <laughs> it, it, it ballooned. You ended up selling the whole piece, I think, to an American collector. Did your life suddenly change after that? Yeah, I never went back to normal work. Mm. I think I'd quit temping a month before the corner shop opened because obviously I wouldn't be able to go to work and run the show at the same time. So I'd managed to save enough because me and my boyfriend were sharing a room in a warehouse at the time. So I'd like got low rent tried not to spend the thing, put enough money to the one side that I was like, right, I can then put petrol in my car, get to work, get to the corner shop every day. Um, so I wouldn't have to pay for parking. And the congestion zone wasn't a thing then. If you man- if you went in before eight, I think, or if you went in before a certain time, I used to park my little Ford Fiesta behind a skip and just like hide my car so it wouldn't get a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> don't think you could do that anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, just I, I, I drove there every day and... Uh, manned the shop for an entire month and I had to ask the guy working in the flower store opposite to like come and watch the shop while I nipped out to the toilet and to get like a cheese sandwich (laughs) (laughs) because I was like the only one there. (laughs) There is this genuine warmth to your work. I mean, partly I suspect that's down to the choice of material, but also it's the subject matter. I mean, you've talked in the past about the sense of nostalgia that your work engenders. That's an important part of your practice. Yeah, it definitely is because I'm not the only one to find nostalgia the most. I I think it's such a strong feeling or emotion. I love it when people have this feeling that nostalgia, that things were always better when they were younger. And it's completely false in a way. Like I seem to remember summers were longer, music was better. You know, everyone always thinks that, but it's always based on when you were born or like when your best time was so I don't know I, I watched Top of the Pops reruns on BBC4 and I, I particularly 80s thinking god it was rubbish really <laughs> but yeah yeah. I really. remember the summer before I went to senior school it was like when Don't Look Back in Anger came out yeah okay yeah like Pulp Blur Oasis it was that whole battle going on it was so exciting because my sister was a bit older as well so and she just got a CD player so we were just like Britpop is the best thing ever <laughs> and we were just absolutely obsessed Absolutely obsessed with Jarvis Cocker. (laughs) 
So that seems nostalgic to me. I guess that sort of like mid 90s. I also think packaging was better back then. I think things were simpler. They relied less on photographics and more than block colours. I feel like packaging peaked at like 80s and 90s. I think that's when they really got it right. Mm, Interesting. We've touched on this, but I'm still quite intrigued to unpick it a bit further, which is where you feel you sit in the art world because you are in the art world. You, you You show at art fairs as opposed to crafts, shows. Was that a conscious decision of where you wanted to place yourself or did it just happen? Yeah, I mean, to me, growing up and being obsessed with art and stuff, I remember having posters and like postcards of all like the YBA stuff when I was at school and just being completely enthralled that anything could be art and it's it's that shock of the new I found so interesting. It's when art seemed, well, it's, it's certainly when British art seemed really cool and I always knew that that's what I wanted to do. I never really saw that the, that it was craft in any way and I still don't really know what the difference is in some ways. I, I definitely was interested in the reasons behind it and making people think and good art is something that people don't forget. You know, the worst thing you can have is art that people are like, oh, I didn't see that piece. It just didn't resonate with me or whatever. I can still remember going to the Saatchi's Sensation show and seeing the Marcus Harvey portrait of Myra yes, Hindley Myra and Hindley, just being yeah. like, that is amazing. In a way that to cause, I don't even know if it would be allowed, I so, like to produce a piece of art that would cause so much outrage whether you think it's good or not, or to cause so much of a reaction. I mean, that's amazing to have a piece so memorable. I must have only been like 12 at the time. I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. I wanted to do that thing where people go into big buildings, see my work and come away thinking, wow, that was amazing. So yeah, I guess that's all I ever wanted. That's all I ever wanted in the art world. I just didn't ever think that I could necessarily get there in the way that I have, I guess. Yeah, it does sometimes feel like you've had to fight for that position that you've got. I mean, in the past, for instance, you've talked about, uh, quote, a a snobbery that detracts from the serious art making that goes into this. Do you think there are elements of the art world that don't take you seriously? I think less so. I've often actually been quite surprised. I've almost gone in there having this chip on my shoulder and fighting spirit where I've been like, oh, fuck, Sorry, you can swear. I'll fucking, I'll fucking show them, um, and they've actually been really nice. And it's almost like maybe it's internalised, maybe it's inverse snobbery. I definitely think there is. That's something that can't be escaped. Um, I still do shows, and then I overhear people at the show, and you, and they're like, "Oh, ma- like I want to buy this," and someone's like, "Oh, don't buy that. I can make it for you." And I'm like, "How rude." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm always like glutton for punishment. I go around sort of like almost chastising myself, listening out for those things because maybe it fulfills this doubt in my own head. Does that doubt fire you? Yes. I actually think it does. And I think that if I didn't have that, I definitely wouldn't be where I am today. And I think there's still going to be places where I wouldn't necessarily get in. I wouldn't necessarily get to show places. I don't think you can ever say never. Like, I never thought I'd be doing this. So... I don't know. Maybe I will have a massive show in the Tate Modern Turbine Hall. Just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> I keep mentioning it. Every single interview that I do that is like in the UK, I just keep putting it out well, there. Well, it does crop up. It does crop up. In, Honestly, in your see? Yeah, yeah, I did yeah, notice that. I just keep mentioning it and, and someone's going to be like, for fuck's sake, just give it to her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your work isn't just about nostalgia, is it? You are trying to say something more with it quite often. The Corner Shop could be read as a critique of gentrification in East London, Likewise, the set shop you did in Soho, the warmongery installation was obviously about weapons. Is it important that you have this underlying message in your work? Yeah, and I think without it, it does maybe possibly blur into the craft side of things. I think through doing so many of them now, the thing that I feel is the overarching thing that comes out of it is the reaction that people get when they see the work and... I now kind of realised that maybe I'm creating this like cocoon for mental health where everything's like a a bit better than it would be in real life. So rather than sort of like commenting on something directly and and so blatantly, I now feel that I'm, I want to create like wonderlands. I want to, to make places where people find alternate joy if they're going through a hard time. So it's like, art-centred Prozac therapy where you can't possibly be unhappy. I remember doing my first show in New York and someone came in and they were just like, oh my God, this is the happiest place on earth. (laughs) And I was like, yes, I will take that. So I don't know. 
I think it's important to have a message. I think, yeah, more than anything, I feel like where the project's getting bigger and bigger, it means, I guess, you're making more and more of an impact. And if that can affect someone, I, I just remember seeing like amazing shows when I was younger and I can still remember them. I can remember what I had for lunch that day. I can remember everything about them. And if that inspires someone to even have a go, then hopefully I've done my job okay. Do people tell you about their problems? At the chemist store that you did, you know, you're dressed in a white coat, looking quite like a professional. Do people kind of unburden themselves? They definitely did. The one thing I found more so was the number of people buying Xanax. Right. Okay. And actually people were quite open with, like there were so many people buying antidepressants, which I thought was really interesting. And a bit depressing. I don't know. I think it was a shared sort of like dark humour where you're just like, this can go in the cupboard next to my real ones. And you're just like, sometimes, and and I've found over the years, sometimes people can be quite shameful or like people like, oh, like medication shaming. Mm. Have you ever, have you had that? Like if you use antidepressants, like on the regs, uh, people be like, oh, you know, (laughs) have you tried going out for a run or have you tried? (laughs) And you're just like. (laughs) Uh, no, because I actually have a medical issue. <laughs> the more that you can, I guess, like destigmatize it, the better. And if that means some felt Xanax in your cupboard, I don't know. I think the felt should never be underestimated. It's very disarming. And I think people don't necessarily realize that. So if they are coming from thinking it is going to be necessarily like lighthearted, I think sometimes it can come across as disorientating, disarming and... It's almost like people come in and they kind of confess their secrets in a way. Like people seem to be a lot more open about how they speak when they come to the shows. I think more so than if they were wandering around sort of like a an empty sort of like white cube space where there's an, almost a barrier up in front of the work. Whereas in the installations, people really kind of let go a bit. Sometimes too much. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. What, what do they do? One time in LA, this uh, this guy just jumped in the freezer. I had this massive chest freeze and this guy just jumped in the freezer and I was like, get out. <laughs> Any particular reason? It just looked like a comfy place to leap into? Just or? lost his shit. Just just got too excited. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. Don't think it would happen in the UK. Yeah, I was going to ask that, whether the work gets different responses in the different parts of the world you, you show in. It does, yeah. People get hysterical in the US, which I absolutely love. <laughs> but um, the shows here seem to have more reach in terms of because it's almost like if the show goes well and it gets loads of press it's almost like big fish small pond whereas in the US you almost get more respect in the UK but in the US you get more actual response do you know what both I absolutely love and I think both have got their place do you see in terms of your role within it when you're when you are showing do you see it as performance art 100% do you know what I never used to because it always started off the only reason I was there all the time is that nobody else could do it and I couldn't afford to pay anyone to run run it I was always here and now I realize actually just because I'm a complete control freak and I actually do really enjoy being there and I think that's part of the process and I think that says something for you know some artists don't even go to their own openings and that's fine like Jesus sometimes I don't wish that I didn't but sometimes you know you get into bed after that and you're just like I'm exhausted I think part of being there part of serving people I think I have a duty to see the felt through right to the end from concept to packing down and putting it back in the crates. So it doesn't feel like a chore to me. I'm, I'm happy being there. Like it's tiring, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Sorry, you mentioned your bed there and I'm intrigued because it came up in some of the press clippings I read. Is it a hamburger still? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> Do you take the bananas to bed with you every night? Yeah, I've got, um, well, Basil, my main banana. Well, he's always with me. And then Sebastian is his stand-in who potentially will take over from Basil at some point. Um, and then I think I've got two giant ones they're like random bed bananas they don't have names just random bed bananas and i've got random tiny banana and then i've usually got four cats on top of me as well yeah you have a lot of cats i do yeah a cat came back (laughs) uh, according to instagram you you lost a cat and it returned i did i lost my buttercup she's like this um this beautiful siamese cat and she went missing seven weeks ago it was when i was doing the heist in london and i hadn't seen her since i did that and last night i got home from work it was about 8 30 Pulled up to the drive and I just heard this really distinctive meow because it's like, wow, 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 you know how Siamese are. And um, I was like, buttercup, buttercup, buttercup. And I like ran in the carport, picked her up and I was like, oh my God, this is a Christmas miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I brought her inside and was it's just... It's still November, to be clear though. Oh, I mean, I've been doing Christmas decorations for, since June, so whatever. <laughs> so yeah, I, I scooped her up, brought her back in and tried to like feed her tuna and just, she's now in like 
the critical care bedroom, which is uh, my bedroom, and uh, she's just being kept very warm. Did you ask her, did you interrogate her as to where the bloody hell she'd been for the past seven weeks? I'm going to let her settle in first. And then I'm going to start the interrogation. Just let her like eat some tuna or some kitten food or something. And then she's going to the vet tomorrow. And then I'll start asking questions because I'm not not angry, disappointed. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, Lucy, our hour is very definitely up. So really, it's just the last question about what future plans you have. Tampa, you've alluded to Tampa. You haven't told us what you're actually doing in Tampa. Right. Tampa is a massive supermarket I'm doing with the Vinnick Family Foundation and Art Production Fund, who I did the show in New York with the Rockefeller Center with. And it's a 5,000 square feet supermarket. It's going to be 50,000 items. It's the biggest show I've ever done. It's been two years in the making because it was actually postponed a year because obviously COVID. And it's called Tampa Fresh Foods. And it's like a cross between a Publix and a Whole Foods uh, with lots of like Cuban, Tampa, like sort of that, that Floridian um, influence. There's, expect lots of oranges, cigars, guava, lots of independent beers, that kind of thing. Lots of Cuban sandwiches. So yeah, it's going to be, I think it's going to be good. And we, honestly, we're on like the last hurdle now is getting the final shipment off, which is leaving January 3rd. So I feel like we're on the home straight now. And it opens when? It opens January 20th and it closes February 20th. So it's on for a whole month. Okay. So if we're in the Tampa area from January the 20th for a month, then you know what to do. Yeah, get down there. Lucy, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No worries. My pleasure. And to discover more about Lucy, go to soyoursoul.co.uk. As ever, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up for my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. So that's it for this year. I hope you've enjoyed, and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>